This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian with me is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Lawrence H. Hish Professor of Law at NYU, and he serves as a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, today is Tuesday, August 9th, and we're doing an early podcast this week because of news that broke late yesterday when President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate uh, was raided by the FBI on some sort of search warrant that we believe is related to the unlawful possession of classified documents held by Trump, although we're still not exactly sure. Richard, I have so many questions here, and I actually want to start with a bigger picture one, which is there's a a precedent being set here about raiding an ex-president's home. Should a former president of the United States be exempt from 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 this? I mean, are there parallels to Nixon? Take me through this. Well, it's very, very tricky. I mean, if you're trying to talk about the legal situation, it's pretty clear that ex-presidents are just like anybody else. A nice way to kind of get to that is to see what happens in the impeachment cases. After the impeachment, the punishment that you could give is extends no further than the uh, removal from office. But once he's removed from office, then the ordinary criminal processes can take over uh, so that there is no special immunity for an ex-president from criminal prosecution. From that, I think it probably follows that there's no special legal immunity of a president um, from a search warrant, which is a preliminary to a criminal trial. Uh, There are protections that are given to ordinary citizens. They would be given to him. The question as to whether they observe from here, I'll bracket for them moment. The real dynamic on this situation has to do with this very loose set of amorphous practices which have developed quite uniformly over a very long period of time. There has never been, to my knowledge, any case where any form of presence has been subject to a search warrant. So if you want to take one obvious situation, there was the Nixon impeachment, and it didn't take place, but he quit office. Once he quits office, uh, why is it that they didn't go to San Clemente, his home, and find out what documents he took with him, whether they were classified, whether they were not classified, but belonged properly in the National Archive? They're two very different classes of documents, but both would be covered. It was because course, I think people kind of sense that the danger that you have in this is political power changes. And if the current party in office decides to engage in these sorts of activities against the former president, the former president and his allies, when they get back into power, will do the same thing. And in this case, that's, of course, a real issue that one has to worry about. There's been this constant buzzsaw of information one way or another about a Hunter Biden and his deals with various foreign governments, including the Chinese and the shares that were set aside for the big guy, which would be Joe Biden himself. Uh, Somebody, if they're on the uh, Republican side of this and they have the attorney general, can start to say, well, a lot of this was criminal activity. Much of it took place before the Biden was even running for office in the interregnum uh, during the Trump administration. And so there would be no special immunities there. Generally speaking, I'm very, very nervous about this because as things start to escalate, uh, the rhetoric starts to get more extreme. And so you see Republicans who are threatening to, when they take over the House of Representatives, if they do, um, starting in January of 2023, there's going to be help to pay on the other side because they're going to be running the investigation and they will be maybe not the mirror image of the January 6th investigations. But remember, one of the things that Pelosi did is she decided to go naked. She did it on her own side, took two very compliant Republicans and brought them over there, monopolized the hearing, did not allow for cross-examination from people who take the other point of view. Uh, That's a pretty extreme 
extreme reaction, no matter what you think about Trump's behavior. Generally speaking, the usual rule on this is the more dubious you think the procedures, the behavior is of the party whom you're challenging, the more scrupulous you have to be with respect to the procedures that you give. You do not want, in a controversial case, uh, to take shortcuts that could then expose you to further difficulties. One of the questions that's swirling around all of this, is this stuff related in some sense to January 6th or not? Um, we know that the Democrats are sniffing around for potential criminal prosecutions with respect to Trump on the on the day and perhaps even with respect to his behavior in the Georgia um, runoff or the, the Georgia discussion after the election had taken place. We don't know any of this stuff. Uh, so at this particular point, what happens is uh, we don't, haven't seen the warrant. We don't know whether it was legal. There are lots of ways that you can challenge warrants that we could talk about. But for the moment, in effect, what happens is we have a big enough political crisis on our hands now then it's going to uh, push the various stuff having to do with Biden's bill um, off the stage. We're going to need a lot more information about how this thing happened, what was the runoff in order to get the doctrine right. It's going to take a bit of time to explicate. Well, let's talk about the actual warrant because we still don't know a lot of information. We believe that it's related to the National Archives requesting classified documents um, believed to be at Mar-a-Lago. So, Richard, you know, a bunch of questions here. Um, what do we think is in the warrant? Is it normal for the FBI to uh, serve a search warrant and raid a, a place for uh, the recovery of classified documents? Can the FBI release the warrant in public if Trump's team doesn't have it, Who and, and they currently do have it? Who would have signed off on it? I mean, is there any difference at the federal and state level of of, of issuing a warrant? Well, let's just take the simplest question first. Um, the one about the standards, there are federal constitutional standards that are contained in the Fourth Amendment, which guards against unreasonable searches and seizures and has this very pregnant position, which it's very difficult to explicate, but even though it's easy to state. And it says, no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized, all right? Uh, so you've got a lot of requirements that are associated with the warrant. And when you start to do it, every word here, like particularly describing the place, et cetera, and so forth, are subject to some degree of interpretation at the margin. Originally, it was thought that the Bill of Rights was a charter to limit the scope of the federal government, although you will see that there's no such limitation written into the text of the Fourth Amendment, which begins about talking about the importance of freedom of the people uh, to be secure from various kinds of unreasonable searches and seizure. Uh, but in a case called Math v. Ohio in 1961, it was held that incorporation was applicable such that the Fourth Amendment now bound the state police forces as much as it did the federal. Uh, so uh, states could have even more restrictions if they want, but they certainly not when there's a federal um, constitutional provision in play, they can't get along with less. There's no effort in this particular case that there was state cooperation with the federal government, not likely to happen in Florida, which of course the governor is Ron DeSantis and so forth. So this is at this point a pure federal play. Uh, the question then is, uh, do you need to use this warrant? And it's a very tricky sort of question. This warrant comes at the end of a rather complicated dance that took place between uh, the Trumps on the one hand and the Justice Department on the other, which started, I gather, as far back as May. And they 
sort of said, look, we know you have these kinds of doctrines here. We would like you to put these things under lock and key and so forth. And the Trump people obliged. Uh, so it may well be that they contain stuff. We don't know whether they contain stuff which was only classified or stuff which was not classified, which belonged in the National Archive. But generally speaking, you can seize things without a warrant to the extent there's some kind of an emergency. That is surely not the case here, because this stuff has been sitting around for several months at least, indeed probably since January 21st, 2021, when Trump left office. So you don't have the emergency exception, so you have to get a warrant. Well, the question is, do you really want to go for a warrant if it is possible for you to get voluntary compliance before him? And so given what happened before, the sensible procedure would be not to raid the place, not to lock it all, but to say, look, Mr. Trump, we've talked. You've got this stuff here. Can we sit down? We'd like to have your attorneys present at the same time, and we can try to figure out which particular documents belong to us and which particular documents are those which you're entitled to keep. And I think if you sort of did that, there might be a little bit of dispute here and there, at which point you could arrange for some kind of judicial oversight to see what's going to happen. But there's no reason why it is that you have to do this in a dramatic fashion. There is a theory of criminal justice that the way in which we make people really look bad is what we do is we exaggerate the nature of the wrong by the way in which we take them into captivity. Um, so we uh, have a situation where you always put people in leg irons and in handcuffs and copy them. So when they walk out, it turns out it looks as though like they're a threat to escape, even though they're frightened to death when they're sitting there. You can do it as the Soviets do and other people do with Miss Griner and so forth. Uh, when you put them on the stand uh, as a witness or in the room, you keep them locked in a cage as if they were going to escape or they're a dangerous sort of animal. And so keeping things at a lower level, I think, is extremely important because you don't get any of these symbolic stuff. And this would not have been any kind of story if it turns out they had done, because you would have had probably a high degree of voluntary compliance on the one hand, and also a minimum of public publicity on the other. And the documents would be backed again. There was no allegation here that Trump was using them for some nefarious purpose um, or that he resisted this. So everybody who kind of looks at this should scratch their head, why is it that the FBI and the Attorney General thought that they did it? And that then gives us the other question that you asked, to which I do not have an answer. Who signed the warrant? Who reviewed the warrant? Generally speaking, I would think that the following position is appropriate. The Attorney General is not an independent agency as such. He works directly for the President who can fire him at will. Uh, but on the other hand, we prize a great deal of independence in the attorney general on the hopes that he or she will be something of a check on the way the president starts to work. It's also the case that, generally speaking, if you are working for the president, most of the decisions you make within the department you could do autonomously and have only internal review. But something as novel as this, at the very least, you would want to run it past the president, and then there would be a very complicated situation. Are you just giving notice, Mr. President, but don't you dare intervene? Or, oh, Mr. President, tell us what you have, and we may be prepared to modify or even call off the search. We don't have any belief that Biden was even told about what went on here. And I think there's some testimony to the effect that he wasn't even informed. Well, this is crazy as far as I'm concerned. Well, then who inside the Justice Department did all this? It surely had to go to Mr. Ray, who's the head of the FBI. Uh, but was there somebody inside the uh, administration who signed it? Was it uh, 
Mr. Garland? Was it his assistant in, in one of these senses or any one of his possible assistants? We, we just really don't know um, who or what is going to do that. That's also a very bad thing. Third thing that we'd want to say is it said you have to describe with particularity the places to be searched and the things that you wish to search for. We haven't seen the term of the warrant. What is going to happen if it turns out that the warrant is overbroad? Um, is, does this mean that you have to return the stuff? Uh, does it mean that there are going to be some kind of sanctions, either internal to the department, maybe even by a court, against this sort of abuse? It's just this too much of this, which looks like a very kind of dark, concealed secret. And so what it does is it gives the Republicans a field day when it wants to denounce this kind of a government. And it also inspires them to say, we'll do the same thing to you if we get the chance. So putting this after the J six kind of investigation. What you do is you see a situation in which it turns out that the Democrats are pushing very, very hard. And I do think that one way to understand this is a trial balloon. If they think it's going to work publicly, I believe the Democrats are now inclined to try to bring criminal charges against Donald Trump or what happened on J6. I think we've already talked about how different it is to try to win a criminal case against a determined adversary than it is to stage a public hearing in which only you and your friends start to talk and you don't get subject to cross-examination or to the introduction of new evidence. So this is all, I think, very, very difficult and it's rather disappointing as far as I'm concerned. We are precipitating a national crisis here over law enforcement when there's no reason to do this. Uh, these documents were very stable. There was no immediate threat, no emergency. Other procedures were starting to be available. So why it is that they did this, we don't know. We'd like to see the warrant. If they say it's classified, we'd like to see a redacted version of the warrant and so forth. We'd like somebody in the Justice Department to explain why it happened. And I think there's only one person who can talk, and that has to be Merrick Garland. I don't think that even his number two, Lisa Monaco, is in a position to start to speak on something like this. So it's a fraud situation. And it's going to be one of these things that could actually change the political landscape uh, in a different direction from the Build Back Better Boo, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act on the one hand, or all the stuff having to do with abortion. Uh, these are interesting times. We're getting closer and closer to election, and we have less and less idea of how it's actually going to work out. A, a quick follow-up for you, Richard, because there you know, is some head-scratching by, I, I'll call it legal Twitter, but a lot of legal experts on you know just rating for classified documents. What would it take, do you think, to make this raid warranted? Would it be evidence of obstruction in a, in a federal case? Is there, would it be, I, I'm trying to think of, you know, in addition to this, like you said, it, just this alone doesn't seem like enough. Could it be, for example, Trump having classified documents there and showing them to foreign visitors when they're at Mar-a-Lago? What, what would it take to say, okay, this makes sense that you would raid the former president's house? Um, you're basically becoming a very professional lawyer. What you want <laughs> to show is that there's some newfound peril uh, that cannot be stopped by the ordinary principles of negotiation that started in May. And what are these things? One is he could start to show these documents to people who are not entitled to see them. If that was not a risk earlier on, and it is now, then it justifies the difference in the kind of behavior. There may be some thought that Trump would destroy these particular documents or alter them in one form or another in order to make his case better in any potential criminal lawsuit or civil lawsuit or tax lawsuit that might come in his favor. 
Generally speaking, uh, the rough maxim is, is that you raid in order to stabilize the situation. And then once the emergency is stabilized, you then go back to normal procedures. So for example, one of the things that happens is you've got a crack house and you always are tempted to raid these things because if you don't, they're going to start to remove all of the stuff that's located in there to a distant location and you'll never be able to get it. So what do you do when you raid? The only thing you're allowed to do before you get a warrant is essentially to stabilize the room, to make sure that nothing is going to be taken out of this room, put guards in there and so forth. But you would then need after the stabilization, a search warrant uh, to actually examine the particular stuff uh, that was subject to that kind of constraint. And the search warrant has this probable cause constraint, which is pretty big. And in this particular situation, probable cause of what? Uh, did there any reason to believe that the president was going to commit a crime or something? And, you know, you look at the text that I gave you and it starts talking about it and it says, no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, right? They don't tell you probable cause of what? The constitution is long on conundrums because the basic text is unmistakable in the direction in which it's trying to move things, greater superintendent, but it also turns out that it is much less precise. So to go back to this, why do we have the clause drafted in this firm? Well, there was a famous case in 1765 called Entick and Carrington. And this was the case of somebody who was opposed to the party in power. And what they did is they sent somebody out with a search warrant called a general warrant. And what they did is they trashed this fellow's home, found absolutely nothing. Uh, they didn't indict him. Uh, so uh, it turned out that there was no particular things that he could do to defend himself in a criminal case that wasn't brought. So he brought an action in trespass, saying, you now violated my home. And they set up the general warrant as a defense. And it turned out the court was exceedingly hostile to that. And so that's the lesson. And now you then get the next case. To suppose you break into a house, it's ransacked the place and you do find stuff uh, that is inappropriate. Can you then admit it into court? And this is one of the cases in which there is the so-called exclusionary rule problem, and nobody's happy with the way in which it resolved. Justice Cardozo, when he was on the state court, said, shall the criminal go free because the constable has blundered? And what he's saying, if the evidence is probative, punish the fellow and then punish the officers. But when you get to the exclusionary rule, they said the officers are never going to be punished. The information should have never been collected. So we're not going to say you can't prosecute the guy, but we are going to say that you cannot admit into evidence the illegally stuff, stuff that you found illegally, or to quote a very famous phrase, you can admit not only that stuff, but also the fruit of the poisonous tree, i.e. other stuff that you found only because you were in possession of things that you should have not have taken in the first place. And so it gets very complicated very, very quickly in trying to figure out what the threat is going to be. And I think generally speaking, everybody who thinks seriously about it says this says, look, once this vehicle gets thrown off the road and there are all sorts of illegalities that start to take place, uh, then it's just going to be extremely difficult to stabilize the situation. So what is the probable cause that they're going to have to show? Is it simply that there are documents there? 
Or will you have to show that there was some threat that these things would have been removed, which necessitates a warrant? And until you read that particular situation, it's very difficult to do this. Uh, but I think there are serious difficulties as to whether or not the warrant in some sense would be overbroad and in another sense, whether it would be premature. Uh, but remember, we're not privy to this stuff. It may take a long time before we get it. It's not clear that Trump can release it. It's not clear that the Justice Department will release it or can release it given other stuff. It's not shrouded completely in mystery. But what we can say in summing this all up is that when you take extraordinary steps of this particular sort, you cannot expect that the matter will resolve itself quickly or well. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published over at definingideas at hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking or informative, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.